Welcome back to another episode of Messages of Necessity. My name is James, and this week I'll be recapping some of the pieces written on our blog by our Empire Center scholars over the past couple weeks. First up, in a piece by Bill Hammond, uh, we explore a new lawsuit from the New York Attorney General's office against the Villages of Orleans nursing home, which could have implications that reach far beyond just this single uh, facility in western New York. The suit accuses the village's owners of financial fraud based on an outsourcing arrangement that is widely used by other for-profit nursing homes. If the legal argument holds up in court, hundreds of other nursing homes in the state could have to reconsider their business models or face risk of similar litigation. Next up, in a piece written by Peter Warren, we look more at the widespread unemployment insurance fraud that took place in the aftermath of the COVID pandemic. By now we know that New York bungled billions of dollars in pandemic-related payouts. It might actually be that the system was doomed from the start, at least when it comes to such a large, sudden influx of federal dollars. Recent reports show that the state was ill-prepared to scale up spending so rapidly and responsibly. Even today, more than two and a half years since the pandemic onset, key payment administration issues remain unsolved. And finally, over on seethroughnewyork.net, the Empire Center has updated its annual benchmarking report and the property tax calculator to reflect 2021 figures. New Yorkers pay some of the highest local taxes in the nation, and these tools serve to help residents compare their communities and better understand the bang they're getting for their buck. Like I said, both can be viewed at seethroughny.net. Of course, this is just a sample of what we've been working on. As always, check out our blog, go to our website, empirecenter.org, for the latest work and the latest analysis from the experts at the Empire Center. See you next time. Well, hi, everyone, and welcome back to another interview at Messages of Necessity here from the Empire Center in New York. And today I have with us Gavin Donahue, and he is the president and CEO of the Independent Power Producers of New York. As you can see from his background, that is IPNI, and we are going to be talking about their work today and just some of the issues that maybe um, we should be concerned about in New York. So welcome, Gavin, to the show. Thank, thank you, Debbie. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. So Gavin, let me start by asking, who are the Independent Power Producers? Good question. The Independent Power Producers Association has been around in New York since 1986. Um, in the 90s, there were divestiture requirements. Um, the power plants that were previously owned by the utilities were sold off to the members that I have as an organization here. We represent probably three quarters of the electricity generated in the state. When I say that, we own the power plants that sell the electricity to the utilities that ultimately sell it to the consumers. Um, we represent every fuel source. I have wind members, solar members, coal, gas, nuclear. Um, if you generate electricity in a meaningful way, you're probably a member of this association. Hmm. The two takeaways that I would like to give you is that we pay somewhere over a billion and a half dollars a year in property taxes, which is a significant amount of money. And we employ probably 12 to 14,000 people across the state. So we are the trade association of electric generators. Okay, understood. So what makes independent 
independent when it comes to power producers? Well, Is the separation we, from the youth utility company? Yeah, we, we are not subjected to, well, we are a little bit. There's lightly regulated provisions, but we don't go in front of the Public Service Commission for rate protection. We have no rate protection. We bid into a competitive marketplace that uh, the rules are run by the New York State, the New York ISO and, and Rensselaer. And my members compete with each other on efficiency, availability, fuel costs, and we bid our electricity into the system every day as a way to determine what the prices will be for wholesale generation. Whereas the utilities are getting their bills paid, so to speak, through the ratepayers and through PSC uh, approval, um, which is a very different construct. Okay, and for people who don't know, what is PSC? The Public Service Commission, I'm sorry. Pub okay, so you represent um, a market, really, yes. of power producers. And how many people? How many companies are in your association? Um, somewhere, there's probably 35 generators, and there's probably a total of 85 members. Uh, so we have associate members and, and smaller law firms and things like that that are not involved in the generation of electricity, but they're interested in the subject matter. Wow. So when I get my power bill, yeah. some of your members are actually behind what I'm seeing in the power in the power bill. They are the the not the delivery or the transmission costs, but the yeah. fuel costs. So um, we are the the wholesale generation piece of everybody's electricity bill. Huh. And what prompted the power producers to form an association? In 1986, um, it was because of they could see the, the 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 reality is they could see that the energy world was changing. That they knew the utilities were not going to continue to own the transmission system and the generation system. That they knew these folks knew that the system was going to be broken apart in a few years. So that's why they started the association. Hmm. And I've been here for 21 years. Wow. Okay. So how are the power producers able to help each other out through an association? Well, we do a lot of advocacy work uh, for all our members. What we really try to do is to promote fair wholesale competition and those rules at the ISO uh, to ensure that we can compete. We lobby in front of the governor's office. We lobby in front of the legislature. We do federal lobbying as well. I have a full-time staff here of six people at various roles. Um, and what we try to do is you know, glean onto issues that impact all of us in a competitive way so that it's fair to compete in New York. So mm -hmm. we're the voice of, of that, those members. Okay. And how different is New York compared to other states when it comes to this kind of structure? That's a, are we pretty unique? That's a pretty good question. Um, we are unique. Uh, if you look around us, New England has six states that's part of their RTO, which is a regional transmission organization. New York State is its own. We have one ISO to compete with. Um, and then you have to the south and west of us, PJM, and they have eight states and dealing with Washington, DC. To get to the, you know, the heart of your question, California has a system like ours and Texas has a system like ours. Unfortunately, what's come out of California and Texas recently on energy policy has been difficult to watch. And uh, I'm trying to be the voice of reason here in New York so that some of those same mistakes don't happen here in, in New York State. Oh yeah, we've all seen California and Texas in the news for not good reasons when it comes to their electricity. Okay, well, I would love to hear a little bit more about the Climate Action Council and the work you're doing there. Um, I know that there's some work that you're doing on climate leadership and community protection. 
and the act that the, the Albany is considering. Could you tell us a little bit about that work? Yeah, um, in 2019, the CLCPA, we call it, um, was passed. And it's basically to um, move to New York to a clean energy future, uh, which is something we support. All the companies I work for are all in a full throttle for a clean energy transition. How you get there, the complexities of it, the cost, reliability uh, are really complicated and they have to be well thought out so that we can avoid what happened in California and Texas. Um, what, we, what this requires is 70% uh, of our electricity to be renewable electricity by 2030 and to have zero emissions by 2040. So um, it is a quick turnaround. It is something that is, uh, as I said, very complicated, very expensive. Um, and unfortunately, what I see about it um, is that the public really doesn't know what's going on. Right. Um, and it's it, we've had public meetings, but um, I think a lot of this is, is in the weeds for people. Um, I think a lot of people don't believe that this can happen, so they don't pay attention. But what this is, is in a retooling of our economy here in New York State. This is just not electricity. This is an economy-wide change. And what, what has me concerned about it is in the past, we've had goals um, in regulation and goals in an executive order. Um, now these mandates that I just laid out, 70% by 2030 and zero emissions by 2040, are ensconced in law. So that's a big deal. Um, and I, I was uh, appointed to the Climate Council in 2019. I'm a part of this council, 21 other members. Um, we've done a number of public meetings. We've taken public comments. We've had meetings ourselves. Uh, we have a draft scoping plan that's out for folk, folks to look at. Um, there is going to be a vote on December 19th about a scoping plan that has to go to the governor and the legislative leaders in January. Um, and, and it's like, last time I looked, it was 700 pages. So it is a lot, it, it's a lot to cover and it's a lot to digest. Um, and I think that there's a lot of gaps in the plan and I'm very concerned about that. All right, 700 pages is a lot and they're moving at a pace that seems pretty quick. So uh, may I ask you about a specific a specific part of this and maybe we can uh, put a little a little detail to it so it becomes a little more real for people. So I understand there's something about a transition plan around gas, about around natural gas and its use. Can you tell us that example in particular, like what is happening with the gas transition plan? Um, well, it's a, I, everything I say here is it's still not final. So okay. what my concern is uh, we have an incredible natural gas infrastructure in New York State. Mm -hmm. Folks need to understand that are watching this. Any day today, 80% of our electricity in New York City is on gas and oil. Upstate New York, it's 50%. So the gas system traverses New York State, upstate, downstate. Um, and if we're going to move off gas and transition away from gas, which is what the law is going to require us to do, what is the fuel that complies with the law that is zero emission? that is abundantly available, abundantly affordable, and can actually be used in the existing natural gas system that we have in the state. And those questions are still not answered. We talk about transitioning the gas system and moving away from gas. Okay, well, let's take it the next step. What are we as a state doing to attract those, those types of technologies and innovations? Are we gonna have a market to do it? Are we gonna wait till other states do it and we lose those investments? 
Is it hydrogen? Is it green hydrogen? Is it renewable natural gas? Is it carbon capture? There's all these things um, that are under consideration, but the Climate Council just doesn't get there. Uh, it just remains silent on what that fuel will be. So for me, I don't believe there is actually a real transition away from natural gas because we're not talking about what's going to be used in a very short period of time to keep the lights on. Okay. So if I'm following everything, we've had this, these goals that have been put into law through the legislature. We're going to we're going to have these reductions. Uh, we have a system that has certain infrastructure to it that is very gas dependent. We're talking about having. I mean, if we were to pursue, pursue these um, goals, you would have to move away from the infrastructure we have that's gas based. But we do not have solutions identified for what the replacement or alternative will be. Is that a fair? I think that's fair. And, and you know what, one of the things we didn't talk about was what's affordable. Mm -hmm. like, you know, the problem in this process, everybody wants new technologies and they want it abundantly available 24 hours a day and they want it cheap. And just that's just not practical. It's mm -hmm. going to cost a lot of money to do this. And if we don't have a, uh, a competitive energy pricing scheme, we're just going to lose more people out of New York State. We're going to lose more businesses. Um, it, it's a big concern for our future. Mm -hmm. Is that the reason you said this has a major impact on our economic structure? Yeah, I, that's one yeah. of them. And the other is reliability. Mm -hmm. um, this legislation was put together primarily by uh, a number of environmental advocates who I think were well-intended. But the background and the, and the critical information that's needed for reliability just doesn't exist. 70% by 2030, zero by 2040. Where did you come up with those numbers? How, how can the system actually conform to that? What studies did you use to do it? The answer is none. There were numbers that were thrown out because they wanted to get ahead of what California was doing. And now we've boxed ourselves in with numbers in my judgment that are not attainable. Hmm. So my last question for you is, <laughs> Is it a real possibility that we will end up like California and Texas, given what you are seeing right now in terms of the way we're managing our um, energy policy? I, I am not going to throw in the doomsday scenario yet. Uh, one of the things that we have in New York State is an incredible a New York ISO, the New York State Reliability Council, uh, the Northeast Regulatory Council. We have tools here in New York that California and Texas don't have, and that's a whole other conversation. Uh, but we have one of the most reliable electricity systems in the state. The reality is somebody has to come to grips with, we are not transitioning quickly enough to make these changes, i.e. we're not building enough wind and solar and transmission to make the transition under what, what the time frame is in this statute. So we have to do a better job of citing these things and building these things. Um, but the reality is, we need to move forward in a smart way, um, but we need to be vigilant. I'm worried about reliability in California and Texas, but I'm not panicked yet. I am worried about it though. Okay. Well, thank you for bringing these issues to our attention. I think you're right that we, we kind of, we flip the switch and we take this stuff for granted uh, a little bit. Yeah. You're, yep. um, you're encouraging us to question a little and 
do a reality check on the kinds of plans that we have for energy policy in the state. So that's greatly appreciated. I'm sure our listeners um, are are going to look up IFNI now and um, okay. follow your work. But thank you for stopping by and talking with us about this today. It's an important issue for us people to know about. Anytime. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank Kevin. you. Okay. Have a nice day. Hi, I'm Peter Warren, the Director of Research for the Empire Center, and welcome back to Messages of Necessity. Hi, I'm James Hanley. I'm a Research Fellow at the Empire Center for Public Policy. So James, we just had an election here in New York State and nationally, and in New York State, voters, when they went in to vote on their ballot, voters statewide, if they turned that ballot over, there was a referendum, statewide referendum on the ballot, and it was a vote whether or not to approve an environmental bond, a $4 billion, $4.2 billion environmental bond for the state. So, and that, that bond was approved. Voters, about two-thirds, maybe a little more of voters voted to approve that bond. So um, now that it's been approved, can you tell us what is it that voters have authorized as you said, Peter, it's a $4.2 billion uh, bond. So the state will borrow $4.2 billion uh, for quite a variety of purposes. There's a lot packed into this bond. Uh, there are four general areas. One is restoration and flood risk reduction, and that is uh, at least $1 billion. We'll go to that. Uh, a little over half a million dollars will go for open space land conservation and recreation purposes. Uh, about one and a half billion for climate change mitigation uh, policies and a little over half a million for water quality improvements and uh, infrastructure. Okay. So so the state's borrowing uh, over four billion here. We know New York State already has among the, the highest per capita debt levels among the states. It's, it's about 70 billion now in debt outstanding. Um, but voters have have approved this. And um, it is, it's, it's been described as an environmental bond. At times I, in the press, it was discussed as a, as a climate bond. Um, obviously, we had some major climate legislation a few years ago that was adopted by the state. So is this, this $4 billion bond, is, is that going to like pay the tab? Um, clearly, <laughs> it's going to be pretty costly, uh, as you've written about, mm -hmm. to make the transition um, to alternative energy, reduce greenhouse gas emissions in the, in the timeline yeah. is set out in that statute. So presumably, the, this is going to help get us from, from here to there in terms of the expense. Uh, well, it will make a small uh, dent in that. How small? The, <laughs> well, this is a $4.2 billion bond, and the uh, Climate uh, Leadership and Community Protection Act is anticipated to cost the state at least $300 billion. Oh. Um, and my estimates are that it will probably cost considerably more because these types of policies are usually uh, underestimated uh, by two or three times often. So we're looking at oh, I don't know, maybe one, one and a half percent at best of the total oh. cost of this. Um, and some of this isn't really about uh, the COCPA um, mm -hmm. uh, climate change. A lot of this is actually infrastructure. Uh, so flood... Like water and sewer. Like sewer. water and sewer, flood risk reduction, uh, replacing lead service lines, which is, is actually a good thing to do because uh, lead in the water uh, causes you know, permanent brain damage in children. 
uh, you know, limiting their future prospects mm-hmm. in life. Um, I think selling it as a, an infrastructure bond probably wouldn't have been as good politically as selling it as a climate mm. and environmental bond. So um, that's probably why it got pitched that way. And it, it does do fair amount of environmental uh, protection as well with um, stream and wetlands restoration, uh, some open space conservation, um, endangered species, uh, or habitat protection, and so on. So, so it's four billion plus interest, mm-hmm. um, and and again, this this was not included in the budget. Correct. Instead, it, it it's you know it's it's a separate item that has to be paid for separately, right. you know, essentially above and beyond the few hundred billion dollars spent in the budget. But so presumably, if the state is 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 doing that, and we're making this special effort to fund this. Um, it, it, it's being done in a way that costs, you know, for the for, we're getting the most for our money. The trying to get the highest return on investment, um, you know, is is that the case here? No, it's really not the case. Um, the the um, bond measure, some of the language includes uh, particular labor standards and project labor agreements that will raise the costs of projects uh, by based on previous Empire Center estimates for these types of things mm. uh, by 13 to 25%. Okay. And so that the, means this money is just not going to go as far on, um, you know, if you, if you think that stream restoration is a good thing, well, we're not going to mm-hmm. get as much of it. If you think open space conservation is a good thing, it's great. We're not going to get as much of it out of this because we are overpaying for the project. So, uh, if I say it's not necessarily a good use of taxpayer dollars, it's not necessarily that the things we're paying for are bad, but we're not pay- we're not getting as much bang for the buck as we could. That really hopefully helps all of our viewers understand the environmental bond, what it does do, what it doesn't do, and it's uh, the the costs and benefits that uh, we can sort of project at this point, though. It's early, and I'm sure James will be writing about it more in the future. <laughs> once, once, once we see specifically where that money is going. As long uh, as there are interesting spent. things to say, I'll be writing about it. That's what we're here for. <laughs> so this has been another episode of Messages of Necessity. For more news and analysis, visit our website and sign up for email updates at empirecenter.org. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Empire Center.